Hello and welcome to episode two of this podcast from Computing, where we break down the latest IT news, give you a bit of analysis behind it and generally discuss it. My name is Stuart Sumner. I'm the editorial director of Computing and Delta, and I'm delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues. We have Tom Allen, he's the Delta site editor, and John Leonard, the Computing and Delta research editor. So we've got three stories once again for you this week. I think we're kicking off with you, Tom. Yeah, thanks, Stuart. So as the uh, Delta site editor, as you just said, uh, I am talking about our newest Delta Web, which is uh, a tool that we use to show how different vendors are performing against one another in uh, a selected space. Uh, this year, we, uh, sorry, this week, we're looking at AI enhanced security tools. So uh, the latest Delta Web shows that security newcomers are increasingly challenging veteran firms like Sophos and McAfee. Uh, so lots of industry sectors are changing because of AI, cybersecurity, one of the most prominent. So think about your two basic types of cyber attack. They really fall at one of two ends of the same spectrum. They're widespread, but easy to detect, or they're bespoke, targeted, and low volume. So using AI, criminals can collapse that spectrum, if you like. They can launch bespoke attacks on a massive scale. Interesting. Oh, go, sorry, go on, carry on. Well, over the last few years, we've, we've seen established vendors, again, like Sophos, McAfee, uh, Fortinet, Checkpoint. Um, they're either launching brand new products or they're retooling their existing ones to use AI. But at the same time, new firms are entering the market. So coming back to the, the Delta Web, uh, the way this works is... Uh, by, is where we ask customers of uh, various security companies to rank their suppliers on a set of metrics. So it's actual quantifiable user data. This is not just uh, an opinion. In this case, we're looking at five key areas that IT leaders told us were important to them when it came to choosing a vendor and a solution. So they are uh, technical support, product roadmap, initial and ongoing costs, absence of hidden costs, and suitable licensing models. And the AI security space is actually really interesting because it's the only one that we've covered in Delta where technical support and product roadmap have ranked above any cost metrics. Cost metrics normally like the, the very first thing that, uh, that people care about when it comes to choosing a new tech tool. So the so, conclusion we can draw from this is that uh, people don't care about uh, budgets when it's security. They just want to spend whatever it takes. So security companies should go in there and pitch really high costs because uh, it's not a concern. Uh, I mean, that's a takeaway you could take from it. It's probably not the takeaway I take from it. <laughs> uh, I think it, it really shows that people care about their security, but they also don't really trust AI yet. They want to have their hand held when it comes to uh, implementation. Absolutely. Yeah, so we've seen veteran firms, again, Fortinet, Sophos, uh, they had AI products that performed really well in all areas, uh, relatively low take up, though, but, but everyone had low take up because AI is really at its very early stages. Uh, we saw other veteran firms like uh, McAfee and Checkpoint, they had some weaknesses in specific capabilities. Those were initial costs for McAfee and tech support for Checkpoint. And when you say weaknesses, we're talking about um, weaknesses in terms of customer satisfaction. So customers, exactly. so the customers we independently sourced said, we're not so happy about the initial cost of McAfee or not so happy about technical support for Checkpoint. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Uh, so in most cases, these established vendors uh, did pretty well on pricing metrics but they fell down on areas like support and product roadmap. That's where the newer vendors uh, like Darktrace were really able to capitalize. 
There were also some really big firms in the research, IBM and Microsoft. You can't really call them veterans because it's not their core business, but they're also not exactly newcomers. Um, quite interestingly, both of them performed really well in tech support, but fairly weakly elsewhere. So what really yeah, that, that, that makes sense. If IBM and Microsoft don't know how to support and speak to IT people, then uh, I don't know where we are. So you, that you kind of, you'd expect them to be good at that bit. But um, I guess they're relative newcomers to the AI and security space. So exactly. perhaps their roadmaps aren't quite up to scratch yet. Exactly. But then again, most of these firms are relative newcomers to AI. You know, it's only been around for insecurity uh, for a few years, certainly at the level it's, it's at now, which is why we're seeing firms that specialize in AI Darktrace being the prime example, doing very, very well in the non-cost metrics. Their implementation is by far the most advanced version of AI of any that we covered in this uh, analysis, but it's also the most expensive. So it's not like they're by themselves completely leading the market. Take up is, is pretty low compared to others. So what is it that these newer firms, what are they doing differently to the, uh, to, to the sort of more established uh, organizations? Well, as I said, um, people like Darktrace, they focus purely on AI. So they have much more advanced implementations. Uh, looking, we'll look specifically at Darktrace as an example here. They have their enterprise immune system, which uses AI to establish what normal looks like in an organization. Um, and then uh, they can automatically remediate and respond to any intrusion or, or anything that goes beyond normal. And that's that's especially interesting and relevant today because normal could look very, very different to how it did 12 months ago. So they don't rely on rules-based systems, which a lot of other vendors do. Um, yeah, so so that's sort of the 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 um, main takeaway from from that. Do you know if these solutions actually take the place of more uh, traditional systems or mostly add-on you know because that's obviously going to be where the um the price issue um mm. comes into focus if you like if you're having to pay twice yeah mostly at the moment they're add-ons a lot of um a lot of vendors uh, sorry customers are in uh, trialing stages at the moment there aren't very many where they have rolled them out as uh, just the single solution they use. They're either just trialing them or they're in very early uh, implementation. So they are using it as an addition to uh, whatever their main, um, their main security solution is. Do we think, I mean, what you often see is a bit of consolidation when you've got um, after market's been you know, starting to mature, you'll see some of the, um, the young upstarts um, will get swallowed up by the bigger companies who you know, want the technology or, or want the people or, or a bit of both. Um, any thoughts on when we might expect to see a bit of M&A in, uh, in this area? Well, I'd certainly expect to see some, uh, but it really depends on the business. The, the much, much smaller businesses, then yes, they could absolutely be swallowed up by people like um, McAfee. Uh, and Symantec and, and Checkpoint. But people like Darktrace, uh, Darktrace has a lot of funding uh, from external sources. I wouldn't expect to see any M&A there. Um, Microsoft and IBM, of course, are massive. You're not going to see those swallowed up by anybody anytime soon. Um, no, they're so, much more likely to do this one. Well, exactly. So I'd expect to see some movement in, in, in that area, but to be much slower or on a much smaller scale 
than uh, we're used to seeing in areas like unified comms, for example. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 a much it's a much more nascent uh, field. It's still a bit still a bit early. Um, I think we should move on in a second. One quick more one final quick question on this one: mm. um, are humans being automated out here? A bit of automation, a bit of AI. Uh, any sort of any any areas of uh, job losses? Do you think? Well, it's the obvious question, isn't it? But uh, so far, no. Um, most systems are still only semi-autonomous. Some claim to be fully autonomous, as in they don't need human interaction at all. But they're often only deployed that way part of the time, like outside normal working hours. And really, we're finding that trust is just not there yet uh, when it comes to um, fully trusting an AI system to take care of your security. I mean, that's a big responsibility to hand over to uh, a tool that is still effectively a black box. You can't see how it works. You have what the vendor tells you it does, but you can't see the code for yourself. So, uh, and you don't know why it comes to certain decisions. So um, a lot of the IT leaders we talked to said that they wouldn't trust autonomous systems at the moment, fully autonomous. Some of them said, how can that be possible? Uh, so semi-autonomous is, uh, is definitely the way to go right now. Yeah, I don't think you want Hell 9000 uh, running your security posture um, no. just yet. I wouldn't have thought. Give it a few years. Um, we should move on. Uh, I'm going to move on with myself uh, now. I've got, sticking with security, actually, um, a story that caught my eye this week. Um, you know the little, um, I don't know how to pronounce this word. I've only seen it written down. Favicons? Favicons? How would you I pronounce that favicons. one? Favicons. Let's go, let's go with favicons for now. Um, so those little favicons that you get in the uh, sort of top left of your um, browser, uh, you, you sort of the, the the address bar in your browser um, when you go to a site like the big W that you, that you get for Wikipedia, for instance. Um, so it turns out, uh, well, it turns out that the internet is is even worse for privacy than we'd previously realised, which is already pretty, a pretty low bar. Um, so those um, favicons can be used as uh, what's been termed a super cookie to covertly track uh, the movement of users uh, across the internet. So this German software designer, uh, Jonas Streller, using my best Germanic pronunciation there, um, he recently published a proof of concept on GitHub um, demonstrating a method that uses the Favicon's cache to store a, a unique identifier for, for each user, for anyone who drives by that site or visits it. Um, so uh, apparently the Favicons, they're, they're cached in a, this is going to get a bit technical, but um, stay with me. They're cached in a separate local database called the Favicon cache or Fcache, uh, which ensures that these little icons are easily accessible to a browser. So when you go to the site, um, the, this, uh, this Favicon um, is cached. When you revisit the site, the browser, the browser checks Fcache to see whether it's there. Um, if it's there, it's displayed in the, uh, uh, in the address bar. But if it finds the data is missing or at a date, then uh, a GET request is made to the website server to load the Favicon. Um, and apparently uh, this allows the web server to collect some information about the user and assign a, a unique pattern um, or a unique identification number to them, um, which can uh, track all kinds of information about them and track where they go across the web. Um, and uh, yeah, so yet another um, privacy issue that uh, we weren't previously aware of. So, so some um, advertisers have been using um, uh, tracking pixels for donkeys here. So how is this different? Do we know? Uh, different from track. Well, th this is so. This is different from the from the standard um, tracking methods that uh, that everyone's been using um, for years because it um, it bypasses VPNs, it bypasses privacy plugins, um, even incognito mode. Um, so if you sort of activate incognito mode on Chrome or um, uh, what's it called in private in Edge, I think it is, uh, or whatever it's called. Um, yeah, it, it bypasses those. This I think this previously wasn't known about. So no privacy sort of uh, mode has been. Uh, 
has been made aware of it. So um, it works, all the top browsers are vulnerable to it, um, apparently. Um, and uh, unlike other, unlike the other traditional tracking methods, like the one you just mentioned, John, um, the uh, unique ID that's made for each user can be stored almost permanently. Um, and there's no simple way to clear it. Um, so you can't just clear caches and, and clear cookies like you can with other with other things um, and other types of privacy techniques don't work either so it is a bit different you know a bit more worrying and yet another um well, marketer's wet dream i suppose yeah I, I i've got two questions there um number one is there any evidence that it's been used maliciously yet and number two uh why are we storing these they're such tiny little icons for the the sake of microseconds why are they being cached yeah, I, I agree with you. It, it, surely it doesn't. It doesn't save time. I can only imagine it's it's stored in order to to save a bit of data about that user. I can only imagine this was the end game. But um, but maybe in the early days of the internet, you know, saving a few a few k's of a download was considered to be a good thing, or a few bytes rather was considered to be a good thing. So um, that's the second question. But going back to the first one, has it been used maliciously yet? Well, well, according to the um, researchers uh, from Malwarebytes. Um, so apparently it has been used already to steal um, payment card details from various compromised e-commerce websites. They said they've noticed several compromised uh, um, Magento, Magento, another word I've never, never heard but seen written down uh, a few times. Um, they've seen a few of those sites loading a data skimmer instead of the legitimate website Favicon. Um, so uh, yeah, so it's... Um, it is, uh, it is out there, it's happening now, and uh, it's um, something to be worried about. So yeah, a good story to um, inform the audience about. Uh, that, I think, is as much as we can say. Quite a fairly small story, that one, but uh, impactful nonetheless. Uh, John, what have you got for us? Um, I have some uh, research that we did about two weeks ago into multi-cloud and hybrid cloud. <clears throat> and I have very, very um, vivid memories of a computing event a few years ago when the CIO got up and told us everything that had gone wrong with his organization's hybrid cloud venture. Um, unfortunately, the memories aren't so vivid that I can recall who the speaker was, but that's getting older for you. Thanks, Stuart. I, 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 I can only sympathise. Thank you. Um, anyway, the system turned out to be a sort of Frankenstein's monster with all the limbs taking on lives of their own. Uh, the public and private parts evolving at different rates. Um, twice the environment meant twice the work. The performance was bad, as latency, you name it. Um, this person, unsurprisingly, was a convert to the cloud-first philosophy, which was uh, quite new round about then. So hybrid cloud is great in theory, this guy said, but forget about it in practice. Um, but of course, timing is everything, and it seems maybe this organisation just went a bit too early um, because everything is now much more uh, uh, mature. It's a much more known quantity. While there's been much talked about rush to the public cloud during the pandemic, there's also been a quieter move to the private cloud, our research showed, with 38% of the IT leaders we spoke to saying that they're investing here too, and most of those doing it as part of, you guessed it, a hybrid cloud setup. And this is because as valuable as public clouds are, they can't do everything. And you may have noticed that computing is moving out of the data center to what's known as the edge, meaning outside the data center, basically, but we're talking smart homes, smart cars, smart grids, everything's smart. Um, plus there's the usual regulatory restrictions that means that some stuff just has to stay in house. Um, so it would seem that hybrid cloud time has really come now. Um, but we also asked about this other paradigm, which has also seen a lot of chatter, which is multi-cloud. And our survey respondents' definitions here were a lot more 
vague than with hybrid cloud. Like no one really seems to know what multi-cloud actually means, which is very handy if you're an IT marketer, by the way. Um, I mean, anything you want it to mean. Exactly. Um, it's a pretty nebulous sort of concept, if you'll excuse it. Yeah, love it. Great. Yep. Thank More you. puns, please. Okay. <laughs> um, so in an ideal world, of course, you'd be able to shift workloads between AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, Alibaba, wherever you want to, in a kind of integrated way, a bit like a kind of a superannuated version of, um, of hybrid cloud. But as you may have noticed, it's not the ideal world. And I hadn't noticed. You had noticed. Great. I hadn't, no. Um, what's currently meant by hybrid cloud is kind of different teams or different locations using different clouds. Um, but what uh, most IT leaders would like to see is a much more integrated approach. But will we ever get there um, where workloads can be truly cloud agnostic and you can sort of shift them from place to place, wherever it's cheaper, um, wherever the services are better, whatever. And this is a topic of some debate on our recent desk flicks. In fact, yesterday, that recent, uh, this week, where we had a panel and we had a chap called Dave Keir, who now works for Automation Logic, but spent 22 years at HP. HP is one of the originators of um, the concept of, of hybrid cloud. And he was very kind of jaded about the whole thing. He said, no, I mean, even if you can do it, there's not going to be a huge amount of a huge advantage. So it's sort of mostly hype. Um, however, we also had Amanda Brock on the panel and, and she was saying that um, she, she works for Open UK. And she was saying that regulations, um, as well as the technical capabilities, are going to sort of see us going in that direction anyway. So she wouldn't be surprised at all, you know, if in the next couple of years, multi-cloud, as in a kind of integrated integration between different clouds, really does become a reality. Um, so it seems like multi-cloud is kind of where hybrid cloud was about five years ago. You wouldn't really want to go in there now, but definitely worth keeping an eye on, I think. Yeah, I think it makes sense as well. I remember one of the most Im impressive stories I heard um, of a move to the cloud um, was a few years ago. Um, and it was, uh, uh, I'm not gonna name them, but it was a very large um, media organization. <clears throat> and I was speaking to the um, to the group CEO and she was talking about um, moving uh, everything into, making everything cloud agnostic. So everything was containerized. And she said, it, it's not quite there yet, but it was on the cusp of getting to a point where it could, they could just look across. So they had the fingers in lots of different cloud pies, um, which is uh, not really a pun, but more of a mixed metaphor. Um, but she was saying they're getting to a point where they could pretty much, you know, look each week at the cost and just go, oh, we're just going to throw everything in GCP this week. Um, oh, now is US cheaper, throw everything in there and just sort of spin everything up and, and down and throw everything in, um, between different clouds um, at a moment's notice, just because everything was so utterly cloud agnostic. Well, that's, and that's definitely the dream, isn't it? But then you have problems standing in the way of that, like uh, data egress costs. Like how, how were they handling the data moving from one cloud to another? Uh, well, probably by the fact that they're enormous, have very good lawyers and uh, probably a very desirable customer because of the enormity of, the, of their cloud usage, I would imagine. I don't think you're going to get a deal like that that enables um, those, that sort of um, unrestricted movement unless you're an enormous customer who's spending an awful lot of money there. You have, you have to be very valuable because I agree for anyone else um, that you're just going to be locked in. Um, although I think vendor lock-in um, seems to be just this purely anecdotally a little bit less of a concern than it was a few years ago. I know when I've raised it with uh, with my contacts and talked about it in a, 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 at events, it hasn't been hasn't been quite as high level an issue for people as I've seen previously. So I don't know if some of those terms are getting a little bit looser as yeah. vendor lock-ins become you know such a widely well, that was about thing. That was one of the points that Amanda was bringing up yesterday. I mean, being at Open UK, of course, she's committed to to open source, but. Uh, 
she was saying, as you as you mentioned, John, that uh, regulations and uh, uh, open tech is is sort of changing the landscape in terms of vendor lock-in. So actually, that brings me to my question for you, John, which is, are the big cloud providers like AWS and Alibaba uh, standing in the way of hybrid and multi-cloud, and why? Um, not so much anymore, well, especially with, with hybrid cloud. Um, they certainly were. Um, AWS quite um, hilariously a couple of years ago told all its resellers not to even mention multi-cloud, you know, it basically doesn't exist. And if they did, they, they'd be in sort of severe trouble. Um, but that's all sort of changing now. Um, and all the cloud providers, of course, know the way the wind's blown, especially with the, the hybrid and the edge stuff. So they're, they're moving to support that. Um, so you have IBM purchasing OpenShift, of course, the Kubernetes uh, distribution. Uh, Microsoft has a control plane called Azure Arc. There's Google Anthos and AWS earlier the, this year may moves in this direction with a um, on-premises Kubernetes distribution, which is basically free and can kind of connect freely up with the cloud. So that's the hybrid cloud piece. Um, they do all kind of a bit stand in the way of the multi-cloud. Uh, you mentioned data egress charges there, um, and that is still, yes, a pretty big issue. They obviously want you in their cloud and not coming out of it again. Um, so I think that's going to remain a, an issue for some time. But, um, you know, these things do move and things do change, yeah. um, depending on the sort of pressures, the regulatory pressures and the pressures of customers, of course, as well. Um, I wanted to just come back briefly to your definition there, because I always thought multi-cloud was um, not necessarily, you know, not necessarily a mix of well, hybrid cloud. I've always seen as a, you know, a mix of um, public and private, but a multi-cloud was a, a mix of of public clouds from different vendors. That's that was my personal definition of multi-cloud, but you've come up with a slightly different one there, John. Um, that I think that's the definition that I also use, um, and I think to be truly multi-cloud, they they didn't there doesn't need to be a degree of integration. So that you can move things fairly freely from one to the other. Yeah. Um, but we found our our respondents were using an average of about two clouds. Um, the biggest ones being AWS and Azure. No surprises there. But most of them were actually just using them in different places. So you'd have a team that was um, adept in um, Azure. You'd have others that really preferred to use AWS. And there wasn't a lot of sort of movement between those two. Um, other way it happens, of course, is things like mergers and acquisitions. You know, you buy a company that's on AWS, even if you're on Azure, it makes sense just to leave them to it, really, you know, rather than trying to shift everybody over to the cloud. Um, other thing about multi-cloud, of course, is that it's quite difficult to find skilled people who are, um, you know, who can handle with, with a degree of skill um, both clouds, because you know, they are quite large and complex beasts these days, um, even though they are generally getting easier to use. Um, there's more and more sort of services and whatnot being added to them all the time. So that's another issue. So that just sounds like ka-ching for all the, um, all the IT people out there that do have those skills, skills in, in yeah, multiple absolutely. different clouds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, the, it's their data scientist moment. <laughs> yeah, quite. So do you think, um, we, we, obviously you mentioned a few times, you know, things are moving on and what, what was seen as um, very risky, um, you know, uh, today is, is, is then, it just becomes de rigueur in a few years time. Do you think we'll, we'll ever get to a point where, you know, as I was describing earlier, um, the clouds are just, it's just another back end and you can just shift things around as I was, as I was describing um, at, almost at will. Is, is that a sort of a, a you know, a, a nirvana we'll never reach or is, is that going to become just the way things are done? Um. 
it seems like it will, although I mentioned Dave Keir, um, who spent some time at HP, and he was, you know, he thought otherwise. He didn't really see, see the, the real reason for it. Um, but I think probably things will go that way. In a way, a lot of the cloud native stuff is fairly cloud agnostic. Um, you can use Kubernetes, for example, in all the different clouds. So if you have a Kubernetes based workload, you know, it'll work pretty much just as well in AWS as it will in Google Cloud. Um, as Tom mentioned, though, the problem remains the data, you know, shifting large amounts of data between environments is always going to be tricky, even if it was cheap, you know, you've, you've still got to shift all the stuff down the pipes. So I guess that's going to be a sticking point for quite a long time for a lot of workloads. But probably you'll find that the workloads that don't depend on these massive great data sets will be the ones that, uh, that do move. Yeah. And also it gets, you know, shifting large volumes of data around gets easier as time progresses. Um, obviously, you know, shifting, shifting a, a gig around um, 10 years ago was, uh, or 15 years ago, for instance, was pretty much not going to happen. Um, now that's not really that hard. So, you know. Yeah, the, the definition of large amounts of data changes over time, doesn't it? Well, that's the other thing. I mean, it's, it, as, as I was saying that, I was thinking, yes, uh, you know, shifting large amounts of shifting what we call today a large amount of data in ten years' time will be trivial, but then what they call a large amount of data then will be will move on again. So, the two things move in tandem. Yeah. My first computer, and I'm showing my age here, was 500 megabytes. Um, that's enormous. Yeah, that my was, first computer was was was, was, a, was a, a, a Sinclair ZX Spectrum. That's that's, that's you, uh, far more futuristic. You, you beat me there, I think. I did. Yes, I'm significantly older, as I've just revealed. Uh, <laughs> that's, 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 I'm, that's the, I'm the token young person. You are, yeah, token token millennial. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, um, and we won't mention John, obviously. Oh. Who? Excellent. Uh, on that bombshell, uh, I think we should uh, leave it for this week. That's quite enough time from us. Um, and uh, thanks for, lis for listening. Thanks to Tom and John uh, for contributing today. And uh, we'll see you again next week for more. Excellent. See you then. Cheers.